Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I want you to go in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and today we will be in verses 7 and 8. We're in this section where Paul is giving thanks to God for these people that he loved so dearly in Philippi. Let me ask you the question, maybe you're starting to get the Christmas cards and Christmas letters where people give you the update. Some people give you a little tidbit. Other people give you their life story at the uh, Christmas season, right? I don't know if you have anyone in your family that send out the, the letter that you have to get your uh, magnifying glass and read everything that has happened uh, this year. But when you think about letters, maybe you recall a letter that's important to you, that you treasure, that you hold on to. There have been many letters that have been written during times of war, and they're treasured letters. When you read them, they can move you to tears. Couples that were engaged that never married. I, I read and I, I saw one story of a fiancé that wrote to her uh, fiancé. She, she wrote and he was overseas and he died. And she didn't get the notification because she wasn't his wife. She got the return to sender deceased. And that was, that was how she heard of the news in World War II. Newlyweds separated by thousands of miles in multiple continents. There was an article in the Washington Post that shared recently about one such couple. Their names, Ray and Pat Brim. Their picture will come up on the screen of this couple on the night of their wedding. They were married on December 7th, 1942. So we just came through December 7th. A year after Pearl Harbor, this couple was engaged in Salt Lake City. So to do, to do so, to get married, he actually had to go AWOL off of his base in Cheyenne, Wyoming for 48 hours, and his crew, his company, all covered for him. They were married and they were, uh, that night, and they were married for 65 years. Pat died in 2007, and Ray died in 2019. There was a letter that they found that Pat wrote to her young husband, about one year on their one-year anniversary. It was during the Christmas season, 1943. So they were married in 1942, Pearl Harbor, 1941, married in 42. This is the letter that she wrote early on that it would arrive in the Christmas season. And she put, and she said, uh, you know, in one of the Valentine's letters, I, I'm giving you some awkward pictures here, but I, I just want you to remember me. But this is the letter that she wrote during the Christmas season. And I just want you, I want to I hear the, the overarching love just oozing out of this letter, right? Okay, my darling, this is just to try and half express what I feel because it's Christmas and because you're over there and I'm here so far away from you. Of course, I'm writing it way ahead of time. But the feeling is the same and always, always will be my dearest, for that matter. To say that I'm thinking of you, dear, is not to touch it. Christmas Eve is when it will be the worst because all I see is last year, us having our little supper and our tree and the church and the snow and all that. We were afraid we'd be homesick and darling. If I can truly say I've never in my life been less homesick or more happy. It was all heaven every moment with you. 
Loving you as I do and knowing that I have a husband who is so wonderful and sweet and tender and loves me so terribly. This is year one of 65. <laughs> Darling, in case I didn't mention that already, I've missed you terribly since you went away, but it's nothing to how I'll feel when you read this. I've tried to send a few things to help make it better, a better Christmas for you, but perhaps I can promise that next year when we're together, we'll have our love and happiness and the most per perfect Christmas in the world. Ray, my dearest darling, I love you. I love you with all my heart and my body and soul. Nothing can ever change it. And so, darling, <laughs> a Merry Christmas, and God keep you always your own. Pat. There's a lot of darling and dearest and love and all of this thankfulness and joy contained in this letter. And I want that to kind of ring out in our minds when we hear what Paul wrote about the Philippians. And you're going to hear some dearest darling, like, I love you. And it's a little almost uncomfortable until you get to know this apostle who is transformed, this apostle who is writing from prison. Not just separated, he was in prison for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and he refused to back down. So back to Philippians chapter one, we're gonna start this morning in verse three, and I'm gonna get just this whole section as we get into verses seven and eight. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you hear it in this, this word? This inspired word of God written from the apostle, do you hear it just overflowing with love and compassion and tenderness and affection? So you see, the, the point that I believe that we're going to take away from this passage today is this. Partners in grace share an uncommon and enduring love. And I think that that connection between a, you know, a Ray and a Pat for 65 years living out and working through the struggles that are in every marriage, but learning the joy of perseverance. That love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. This is an intensely personal letter, and I just want to ask you the question, would you, would you, if you're married, would you want your kids or your friends to read your love letters when you were dating out loud? It wasn't too long ago, the kids found a, a box of letters that I had and they were running around the house like, ah, oh, we found the letters, you know, and they're reading it. It sounded a little bit like uh, Pat Teray there, you know. But I, when you think, now, now this, this message, this, this text was, was tripping me up this week. It, it, was, it was making me sweat. How do you preach a love letter? 
Okay, I'll, I'll give you one of, the, one of the outlines that I you know, wrote down and scribbled down and I ended up tossing out. I just wanted to share it with you, though. So, so here it is. Point number one, my mind is made up about you. Okay, you see that in the text. Number two, my heart is filled up with you. But number three, my guts are bound up for you. I kept on, like, number one, that works. Number two, but number three, somehow, it's just missing. But the word that he uses, and we're going to get to it, is, is, in the Greek, it's bowels. Like, it's everything, and it's what you feel, and you remember if you were engaged, and you could not wait to spend the rest of your life with a person that became your spouse. And you were just, it wasn't just in your head, oh, yeah, I love them. I love them. It was like, I want to spend my life with them. And Paul says that. He writes that. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to keep working on this. So number one, my thoughts about you all are right. My thoughts about you all are right. Now, this is why we read the section, because he's, he's going back. He's saying, my thoughts, what I've just said about you, it's settled in my mind. It's Right. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Not just some of the Philippians. All of you. He's saying the way I think about you, it's righteous. It's justified. I can back it up. It's good. It's healthy. And so he remembers what he, what we remember what he just said. He says, I'm thankful about you. And that was expressed in verse three. I have gratitude to God for you. So thankful for you. When was the last time that you were overwhelmed with gratitude to God for the people that God has placed into your life? Do you realize this is a constant in our church family right now? As I talk to people in every single small group that met over the last week, this is the resounding testimony coming out of those who gather in small groups. I love my small group. I love the people in our group. When was the last time that you were with someone and they were expressing their gratitude to God with you? Hardly a week goes by and I don't hear someone in this congregation just overflowing with, I'm so thankful to God for you, for these people, for what God is doing in the good times and in the hardest times. And sometimes it's expressed in not even words. It's, oh, I just love the people. I'm loved. It's the body of Christ. It's happening all around here. Now, younger people. Now, now, a couple weeks ago, Stephen got into older people, younger people, and he said, don't come ask me, all right? But I have something for the younger people. Are you actually noticing that there are superheroes in the faith around you working in this church, serving the Lord in this church? Do you know that you're among greatness? There are people who serve relentlessly in this church. You can depend on them. They're faithful. You don't have to wonder if they'll make it. You don't have to wonder if they'll be there. They will be there and they will be serving with joy until the final light is turned out and the last door is locked. 
And I'm wondering, younger people, as you watch this older generation serve, if you're coming alongside of them saying, teach me what you're doing. Show me how you come to worship. Why is that? Teach me how to do this. Or if you come as a consumer, I wonder what everyone has done for me today. It's a very different approach to life than ministry. And I want all of our teenagers and children and people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Pay attention to the people who are in their 70s and their 80s and their 90s, and they are not burned out for serving God. And don't for a second think that we're owed this glorious, glorious display of love and grace. They're absolute heroes of the faith, and not many people even know their name. But I will tell you this, the Lord does. And we should not just wander through aimlessly with blinders on our eyes and miss the heroes of the faith that are serving around us and get beside them and strengthen up their hands and say, so your back's not doing so good, my back will help you. My arms will help you. My mind will help you. I will be there with you and I will serve with you. And that's people of all ages and we have something to learn. Don't miss it. Every Sunday when you come, every time when you gather, you look around and you say, who is here and how are they serving the Lord? And look at the joy that is coming out of their life and their face and their, their step and how they serve. And God, make me like that. Teach me how to be like that. Teach me how to serve you in all of the good. Do the little things well. There's a lot of people that think, well, if I had the big assignment, if I had the upfront, the main thing, then I would bring it all. But who is faithful in little things is given greater things. And the Lord has a marvelous way of taking the little people and little things that seem so insignificant and saying, I see you. And I bless you for all that you do for Christ. And I just want to just camp out on that. That's what Paul is saying. I'm thankful for all of you. And Paul says that. I'm thankful. He's filled with joy about them. He said that in verse 4. I'm filled with joy. When I pray, I'm filled with joy. This is the overarching theme of this letter. It's an abounding joy because he sees the outworking of obedience in their lives. And this is just inexpressible joy. And it comes out sometimes with like, ah, you know, like a praise the Lord after we sing or hallelujah, our hands go up and we're just, it's hardly words to, can, to express what God has done for us and he didn't owe us anything. In verse five, he says, oh, I'm, I'm right to think this way about you because there's an enduring partnership that you have had with me. You've been partnered with me from the first day until now. You didn't run from me when trials and hardships came. You ran to me. You sent Epaphroditus to me, your partners in grace. Oh, let me encourage you. Do what the Philippians did. Draw into relationships. When you face trials, when you face hard times, the, the, the overarching temptation is to run and hide. It can be a 
thousand excuses. Too busy. I don't have my act together. I don't want people to think that I don't have my act together. So I'm going to wait until I get my act together and then I'll go into fellowship. And that's not how God works. My discipleship, your discipleship is not a solo project. It's a community project. It's the body of Christ. And Paul is thankful for them. They didn't hide from him. There was a risk to go be connected to him. Anybody they sent, you're with him? Okay. We'll lock you up next to him. Loved ones, God doesn't run from us in our, in our mess, in our unfinished process. He'll finish what he started in us. We draw into fellowship. We run to account- accountability because that's the safest place for us. That's the safest place for me. He says, and we, we talked about this last week, I'm confident about you. I have confidence about you. I know that God will finish what he began in you. I know that, loved ones, God will finish what he started in us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Deanie said to me this week, she's like, I, haven't, I got that song on my mind all week that we used to sing. He who began a good work in you. Or maybe that was Marlene. One, one of the sisters said this to me. You know, we'll be faithful to complete it. We'll be faithful to complete it. We'll be faithful to complete it in you. He says, I'm right to think that way about you. I'm confident the verdict is in. It's settled. I love you. I'm thankful for you. I'm confident in you. I have joy about you, about all of you. He says, I have no regrets. I'm not wrong. I'm not out of bounds to think this way about you. I have no regrets about, and it's for all of you, not just for Paul's favorites. Paul loved Lydia. She was wealthy. Paul loved this slave girl. Well, she had been exploited, and she was poor. He loved the jailer and his family, the whole household, a person of great influence in the Roman colony. He loved them all, and he, as he writes about them, he remembers it, it came through great suffering, but you didn't ever run from it. You came to me. My thoughts are right about you. Secondly, my feelings for you all are real. So here we have the man of God talking about his feelings, Right? Feelings, you know, can, come on, man, you know, we don't have feelings. You got no feelings. I was watching the TCU, I saw an interview from the court, quarterback, uh, Dugan, I think his name is. And they said, you walked around campus with a broken foot and you wouldn't have any assistance? You wouldn't have a cast, a boot, nothing? No. I grew up in a coach's home. No, no feelings. You can't show pain. I didn't want anybody to have a picture of me looking weak, you know. Is that, you know, that, that guy, he's, he's quite the football player. He's got a heart, and he's, he's fierce. But Paul, he says, I have feelings for you, and I'm not ashamed of them, and I'm not going to hide them. I love you. I'm affectionate for you. I treasure you in my heart. He says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers It's a word with fellowship there. Partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So what Paul is saying is, I'm I'm holding you in my heart. I have feelings in my heart for you all, and these are real feelings. These are enduring feelings because we share in grace. We're partners in grace. We share in the same grace. Philippians, you're side by side with me in this work of grace. 
They shared together the same grace of God that saved and transformed the apostle is the grace of God that transformed Lydia and the slave girl and the Philippian jailer and everybody else that came to faith in Christ in Philippi. They shared in the grace of salvation. Do you have a share in that grace? Have you received, have you done what the psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good? Have you heard about the grace of God or have you personally responded and received for yourself the grace of God? They shared not only in the grace of salvation, but they shared in the grace of sanctification. What Paul wrote about in 1.6, he was seeing God at work in his life. He was seeing God at work in their lives. Are you seeing God working in your life, changing your affections, changing your desires, changing what you dream for and hope for and plan for, changing what you love and what you value? Are you seeing God do that in you? God's doing that in me. And I love that I can see where I was, you know, even specifically at the beginning of marriage with Ginger to where I am now. And I can say with uh, what John Newton, I'm, I'm not what I, you know, should be. I'm not what I am. I am what I am. I'm not, I'm not what I used to be. And thank God I'm, I'm not what I will be. Like God's working. And I can see that it's relationships. It's the body of Christ. It's brothers and sisters in Christ going through life together. It's meaningful confrontations at times, disagreements often, and you work through those conflicts. And that's how we grow in Christ-likeness. They shared with Paul in the grace of sanctification. Do you have a share in that? Because let me tell you something, it's never going to go missing because of a foolish CEO or owner of the company and it just disappears. Not our salvation, not our sanctification. They shared in the grace of giving. They were the ones who sent Epaphroditus to Paul. They sent him to minister to Paul, to bless him financially. They shared with him. It nearly cost Epaphroditus, that Philippian servant, it nearly cost him his life, and he went. They were exemplary in their commitment to give and to share sacrificially. We thank God as leaders. I thank God as a pastor in this congregation for those who are committed to give and to share sacrificially for the faithfulness of the believers to give themselves first to the Lord, then to the local church, and then to partnerships. Various needs that arise, you heard it on the video today, the youth group, being taught, have concern for others, gather diapers, gather wipes, be a blessing, live for someone other than small little you, no matter who you are. Do you remember Tom Brady after he won three Super Bowl rings and he said, is this all there is? Yeah, yeah. That's the end of athletic accomplishments, financial accomplishments, business gains. If that's the point, if that's the goal, if that's the aim, is to have people applaud for me, to know my name, to buy my jersey, to put me in some hall of fame somewhere. If that's the end, it's small. Oh, but to know God, 
to live for the glory of God, and then to do athletics and to do whatever it is that you do in your work or in your home, and you do it in the church for the glory of God, that is a never-ending praise and glory to the Lamb. You know, Paul, he is so thankful for these, and, and I'm thankful for those who give even in the generosity of people giving this week in this congregation. As elders, we met this week and Jay is our secretary. He's the one, our, our trustee, treasurer. And he's taking seriously the responsibility of are we making budget? Are we, are we good stewards in everything that we do? And the very day that he comes into our, our meeting planning for 2023 and he comes by the desk where Nicole is and someone gave. And there we are. Again, the Lord shows himself faithful. I mean, praise the Lord, right? <laughs> we don't know what to do, right? Say amen, clap. You know, like... If you, if you were the one that gave or the many that gave, you're like, well, I can't really clap. If, you know, the Lord has blessed us. Here's the point, loved ones. We are to be good stewards, but understand the Lord is not poor and the Lord didn't lose anything when any company went defunct. He owns it all. The question for us then, as this week the bids went out to contractors, and I attached a letter to those contractors and we're praying because we just went through the book of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, he said, Lord, help me. And the end of that interaction with the king was the king saying, hey, Nehemiah, here you go, buddy. There's my card. Put it all on that. I'll pay for it. We serve the same God. The question is, is do we have the faith and do we have that compelling prayer that Nehemiah had, and that is, this isn't going to happen by might. This isn't going to happen by power. It says elsewhere in the Old Testament, this will happen, the Lord says, by my spirit. And at the end of the day, none of that applause is for you or for me. It's all to the Lamb who is worthy. So be praying. Lord, you can supply through this next phase, this building program, by bringing the costs back where we can afford them. Or those bids come back and you supply because someone is moved like the Philippians to say, I'll take care of this portion, that portion. We have seen the Lord do this. Since the pandemic, the Lord has blessed us in ways that we can never imagine. And I believe it's grounded in a group of people saying, let's seek the Lord, let's be faithful to the Lord, let's put him first, and let's love him more than we love our health and our very lives. And the Lord has blessed that. Tony Merida and Francis Chan say it this way, Paul and the Philippians model for us what it means to have Christian friendship centered on the gospel. It involves a willingness to sacrifice. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he used the, 
the Philippians and others as examples. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, he says, we want you to know, brothers. So he's writing to the Corinthians. Now, I've told you before, the Corinthians were rich. I mean, they had loads of money in Corinth. You couldn't get through, you couldn't, the only way if you came in with your ship on one side to get to the other side was you paid people in Corinth, either haul my ship across that isthmus and drop it on the other side, or haul all the stuff from ship A over to ship B. So everybody in Corinth said, well, you're going to be here a while, aren't you? And they could charge whatever they wanted to charge. So there was money in Corinth to go around. And Paul says, hey, listen up, brothers. I want you to know this about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Who saw that coming, right? They hit hard times and overflowed with a wealth of generosity. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means. Okay, now that is appropriate for us to give according to their means. And then Paul says, actually, as I'm thinking about this, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, not because the apostle twisted them, guilted them, uh, put plaques up for the biggest giver, the diamond giver, the gold giver, the platinum giver. Here they are. He didn't do that. He said this was of their own doing that they gave, begging us, verse 4 says, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but now, now listen, this is a manual on Christian giving. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That's where it starts. He owns me. If he owns me, he owns my wallet, he owns my bank account, my family, my house, everything. It's all his. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Verse 6, accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7, but as you, Corinthians, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. Hey, don't forget this. See that you excel in this act of grace also. It's grace giving. Excel in the act of giving graciously. Paul says we share in grace and he knows that because Epaphroditus is there with him and he's received the blessing from them. Also, we share in suffering. Paul says we share in suffering. It wasn't just in the good times. It wasn't just when all things were, were going well. No, you shared with me when everything went south, when everything fell apart. In no way, in no way did they think that the Christian life was supposed to be just, you know, the yellow brick road full of ease and comfort. No, they saw the apostle suffer. When he first came to town, he suffered. Silas with him, they suffered. They didn't run from the apostle. They weren't fair weather friends. They were committed to Paul, whether he was bound or whether he was free. Loved ones, listen, Christians ought to be the best friends on planet earth. Let me say that again. Christians ought to be the best friends on planet earth. They ought to be the best spouses. 
They ought to be the best citizens, the best neighbors, to know how to function with others around them. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, he says this, he says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, okay, so he's telling them this is how we were treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of, midst of much conflict. We came out of suffering and we came to Thessalonica and our lamp wasn't dimmed and it wasn't under a bushel. We came on great joy seeing God is doing great things. Loved ones, there's no honor in suffering for doing, doing wrong. If we do wrong, there's no honor in that. That's not suffering for Jesus. But listen to me, if we do what's right, there is no shame in suffering for doing what is right. If we do what's right and we suffer for that because we preach the truth, we speak the truth, we proclaim the truth in love and it doesn't fit with 2022, there's no shame in that. And it doesn't matter if the whole world stands against you. If we are speaking the truth in love, speaking the right thing in the right way at the right time. Now who is sufficient for these things? God is our sufficiency. Paul says our sufficiency is from God and we need him. So that's basically just a paraphrase of what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 3, 14. And he said, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a, and here's the word, defense. Make a defense. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Oh, let that permeate how we post on social media. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Loved ones, there are too many people, even people who call themselves Christians. And when things get difficult in relationships, they cut ties and they run. It is not how it should be. We need to learn how to resolve conflict in a Christ-like manner. So the question is, how do you respond when someone says to you, I'm sorry that I offended you. Will you please forgive me? When someone says, will you forgive me for, and they fill in the blank for whatever that may be and, and that caused their relationship to go silent, to go distant, to go apart, and when they say, will you please forgive me, how do you respond? Are, are you waiting to forgive? Or are you waiting to, oh, I have a list first. And you, and you, and you. Is, is that how we are? Is that, is that how we treat others? Now, I want to be clear here. This does not... In, this does not mean in any way that we enable those who do wrong, who sin against other, and we're Christians and we just have to forgive, and that means that, no, 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 no. We do not enable wrongdoing. We do not enable injustices. Loved ones, it takes one person to break a relationship. It takes two people to restore a relationship. 
okay? And often the person that is trying to restore a relationship and the other person, if they're not, that person is the person that bears the guilt and the shame because they can't get the relationship reconciled and they want to be vertically right with God and they want to be horizontally, horizontally right with others, but we can't make that happen with others. So we have a posture that's helpful and the posture is as believers with relationships, there are times when we step back from the relationship and we're ready to restore, but we have to be like a lifeguard. They have to know going into a scene, this person who's drowning in the water, they may not see me and feel me and recognize me as help. They may see me as a threat. And if they take me out, we'll both go down. So that lifeguard has to be trained to engage and you have to keep your, you have to keep your lights on because if you both go down, you're both in trouble. You'll both drown. Okay, so there's a posture as believers that there are times in relationships and we step back from the relationships. We don't enable wrongdoing. We don't affirm wrongdoing. We don't bless wrongdoing, but we love that person. And so we step back from them. What is not Christ-like is turn our back on them. It's very different. And there are times when people feel guilty that if I'm not being faithful to Christ, then what does that mean? I have to turn my back on somebody. Now you step back and you keep praying and you're there in a posture waiting for the day when the person says, like the father in Luke 15 and he's waiting for his son and he's watching. He didn't go join his son in the pig pen. He's watching the righteous father. He sees his son coming and what does he do? I've been waiting for you. And he pulls up, unthinkable, pulls up his robe and ties it up. And he bears his legs, a Middle Eastern elderly man, and runs. And he doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. That's my son. And I've been waiting for him to come home. And I see him and I'm going to him. That is a Christian posture for relationships knowing we can't make reconciliation happen. And we don't enable those who do wrong. And Paul writes to Timothy, because Timothy had some things to learn as a young man, 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, hey, listen to me, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Do you hear what Paul is saying to Timothy? He, in, in a paraphrase, hey, be like the Philippians, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of suffering. Don't run from me. Now, Paul knew what it was like to have people forsake him. 2 Timothy 4.10. This is toward the end of Paul's life. Paul loved people, and he says for Demas, well, his love was different than Christian love. Demas loved this present world. He was in love with this present world. He was earthly minded. He was driven by everything that is passing. He has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You hear the heartbreak there? That didn't change Paul's faith, but he loved Demas. And Demas proved to be not genuine. He didn't love Jesus. He didn't love the church. He didn't love the apostle Paul. He didn't love the word of God. Demas loved Demas. And he bailed. 2 Timothy 4.16, listen to this heartbreak. At my first defense, Timothy, listen, no one came to stand by me, 
but all deserted me. Now, what would you say following that up? Do you know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul. Hmm. I often say I, I don't believe that Paul ever erased that image of Stephen dying and him holding their coats as they stoned him to death. And what was Stephen saying when he died? Forgive them. Don't hold it against them, Lord. Don't eternally block them out because they've done this to me. And who's the answer to that prayer? Saul of Tarsus, now Paul. And now he writes to Timothy, and this is his heart. This is his feelings. This is gutter. This is, this is, this is in the gut. They deserted me. Nobody came. They all left me. Hey, but Timothy, get this. May it not be charged against them. Is that how we treat people? Or do we keep lists? Paul acknowledged the hurt. He acknowledged the wrongdoing, but he also invoked grace. May it not be held against them. Well, how could he do that? That's what he heard Stephen saying when he died. That's what Stephen and they all heard. That's what Jesus said as he was dying. And do we belong to Jesus or not? That should be our response. The Philippians ran to the man of God. This man was overwhelmed with persecution and trials. God help us to be like this. When everyone else is running from the conflict, when everyone else is running from the struggle, may the people of grace be the ones who will run to the battle. We run to the broken. Do we go to those who don't have it all together? They're not, they're not all put together and they don't you know, act right, look right, think right, talk right. Are they welcome here? Absolutely. Have we forgotten who we were when Christ found us and saved us? Do we have that kind of compassion for others? But here's the beauty of it. Christ will not leave us alone. He'll meet us where we are and he will take us where he says we need to go. Very different than, well, what I want to do. Listen to another partner in suffering. When John, Revelation 1.9, he says, I, John, here's another note. Get this now. John, the apostle, he doesn't say that. John, the one that was leaning on Jesus the night of the betrayal. John, the disciple that, you know, Jesus loved. He doesn't say that. He says, your brother. Humility all over this man. Your brother and your sharer, your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And all of that, do you hear what he's doing? We're sharing in something. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was suffering for Jesus and the word of God. And what happened there? Just the unveiling of Jesus. Let me show you what's coming, John. And you write this down and you hold that back. Don't put that down. Seal that up. But this is what is coming and every eye will see him. And John didn't know that was at the end of him getting farmed out to an island. That'll teach you to go against us. And Jesus says, hey, hi, John. I have something for you. And I love you. 
I have a letter for the churches. Write it down. The revelation. Little side note here, it's not revelations. Revelation. Another word, the unveiling of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus. It's all about Jesus, beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament. It's all about Jesus. And where did John receive that? In a moment, in a time of great suffering. And he says, hey, to the church, we're partners in this. We share in this. Paul says, we also share, we have fellowship in the gospel. We're, we're compadres here in the gospel. We're companions. The Philippians were centered on the good news. And Paul described the work of the gospel. It demands sharing this message, the only message that saves sinners, but this message brings conflict. People don't mind when you say Jesus is the way of salvation. They mind when you say he's the only way of salvation. You can't save yourself. Say what? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you know how much I've given? Do you know who my parents are? Do you know this? Do you know that? No, that's not all. The, that, all those questions are meaningless. Do you know Jesus? And even better yet, does he know you? I know my sheep and they hear my voice. They follow me. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Do you, do you listen for the voice of Jesus? Do you read the word? Are you hearing what he's saying that you might grow in obedience? This gospel is defended, and that's what Paul is saying here. It's defended. This is, this is a negative. This is a, it's, it's courtroom terminology that Paul is giving. That the gospel is on trial, and Paul steps forward, the Philippians step forward, and they defend the gospel. They give the apologetic. They give the faith. They defend the faith. Like Jude wrote, contend earnestly for the faith. They defend the faith from a world of doubters and deniers and unbelievers. That's why we read 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's where it begins when God is in first place, when Christ is supreme. That's why at the heart of our distinctives is Christ-centered preaching. Everything else flows out from that. And so in this defense, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, to give an answer the people say, why? You're suffering and you have joy. You were wronged and you're forgiving. Why? Why do you have this hope? And you give the answer, it's Christ. And he says, but do it this way, with gentleness and respect, with the people that we disagree with, with the people we can't even understand. How do you see that way? Why do you think that way? How can you come to that position, that belief, that opinion? Don't you know this, that, the next thing? You got all the arguments. But do it with gentleness and respect. Oh, Lord, help us to defend the faith with gentleness and respect. What is that? Love. It's the love of the master. It's defended. He said, you're with me on this. You're, you're partners with me. We share in this. We share in the gospel. This gospel is defended. It's defended in Philippi, defended in, in Thessalonica. When I went there, prison in Rome, it's being defended. Everywhere we go, it's being defended. And not only that, but this gospel is being confirmed. And this is positive. This is revealing that our doctrine and manner of living, they go together. We heard the message. We see your life. And you know what? They sync up. 
They go together. How you live matches the message that you proclaim. It's confirmed. They have to go together or the world is right to say you're hypocrites. You say one thing, but you do another. Paul says, no, no, no. You are partners with me and you share and this gospel is defended and this gospel is confirmed. This message is true. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the context of suffering, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, let me, let me say what is being said here by Paul, that they may see the gospel defended and confirmed. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We heard what you said, what you say, what you're saying. We see your life and it's confirmed. Is there room to worship this resurrected Savior? Will he have me? And the resounding answer is yes, while you're alive. While you're alive. Oh, Paul, he says, my thoughts are right about you. My feelings are real. And he says, listen, my desire, you want to write in guts? You can write in guts, okay? My bowels. My desire to be with you all is relentless. It's relentless. I longed for in my being, for God is my witness. He's still in the courtroom. Place your hand on the Bible. Do you solemnly swear? Tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you, God. He's saying this is true. I'm not backing down from this. This love is authentic. This love is the real thing. It's not selfish. Paul is not self-centered. This love is permanent. This is how Paul loved God. This is how God loved Paul in Christ. And this is how Paul loved people. Now listen, God's love is not permissive. God's love is not pampering. God's love is perfecting. That's the love that Paul has for the Philippians. It is not to enable kids can do whatever they want to do and we just have to cave in because I love them. That's not love. The garden, one tree, and in the beautiful presence of the garden and the presence of the Lord, and what did God tell Adam and Eve? I'm going to give you a no. One no out of all the yeses of the garden. And what did the human heart do? You don't love me if I can't do what I want. I can't have that. Has God said, just doubt the word of God. And everything begins to slide from there. This love that Paul has, he says, man, it's authentic. It's the real thing. I want to be with you. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Is that how you think about the people of God and the Lord's day and coming to gather to worship? I can't wait to be with you. I, I'm just going to steal Paul's thing here. Like, yeah, my love for you is relentless. I love you. I love being here. I don't even care what we're doing. Weddings, funerals, dinners, banquets, chimney fixing, 
What, I don't even care what it is. I love to be with you. I love to be in our small group. I love the conversations, the prayer, the fellowship. I love when I see people come in who are relatively new and they're connected and they see someone that knows them because they, they have a longing to be together. It's not legalistic. It's the love of God doing its work in our lives. This is authentic love. And Paul says, listen how he writes to the Thessalonians. He says in verse uh, 17, chapter two, he says, but since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, can't do that. You can't tear me away from you in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Do you hear the love that Paul has for people? I love you like that. This is what makes ministry so enjoyable that we can go through all of the good times and difficult times, but Paul by the grace of God, he, he came to understand what life was about. It wasn't about Saul, the big Saul of Tarsus. It was about Jesus, who is God, who became man, who lived a sinless life, who was put to death on a Roman cross and buried and rose again. And you cannot stop his gospel. And you cannot stop his church because he promised, you couldn't keep me in the tomb and you can't keep this church from growing it will grow. It will overcome. Amen. This love is affectionate. Amen. This love is authentic. This love that Paul has is affectionate. It's the love of Christ. It's more than a feeling, but it includes feelings. Okay. So sometimes there are the theologians like, no, you know, no feelings, you know, you gotta be right and you gotta be right and doctrinally sound and you gotta have the right translation and the right this and the right that. And where's the love? No, this, this love is affectionate. James Montgomery Boyce, he says it this way. He says it's not enough. All right, get ready. He's gonna, this is him, okay? This is him. He's stepping all over our toes. It's not me, it's him. I'm just quoting him. It's not enough to tolerate other Christians. You ever heard people say that? Well, I love them in the Lord. I just don't like them. Yeah, good luck with that, all right? There's no such thing as luck and there's no such thing as that statement being true, all right? It's not enough to tolerate other Christians. You must enjoy their company. You must learn from them. Furthermore, this fellowship must be one that is constantly expanding to include other Christians, even those whom you've never met, but with whom you are forever united in the Lord. He is building his family, his church. This kind of love is not a love that is required. It's not a love that's taken. It's one that's freely offered, like a couple preparing for marriage. They can't wait to spend the rest of their moments and days and years and lives together, however long that should be. And listen, I will say this. As we talk about love and we talk about affection and we talk about feeling, do you understand that God's design for marriage, for affection, even display of affection within the bonds of marriage, that's where it's holy. And our culture is saying, you don't have to listen. You don't have to do that. So, so having marital affection before the marriage, number one, is sin. Number two, it, 
It blasphemes the love of Christ for his church that is faithful and selfless. And number three, it actually hurts the people involved. It damages you. It's not right. It's not righteous. It steals your own personal joy and it steals your confidence in Christ and it steals the joy and harmony of a future marriage. So listen, this love, as it's affectionate, this is God's love. This love is, lastly, agape. Okay, what does that mean? It means it's divine. It means it's Christ-like. It's a love by choice, and it's not a love in response. It's not dependent on feelings or actions, but it's not divorced of feelings and actions. Okay, it's not just a, a you know, decree of love. There, I love you. Because I love you. That's it. Oh, thank you. You know, get that card on Valentine's Day. I love you because I chose to. Okay. Thank you, maybe. Okay. This is the highest form of love because this is how God loves. His love is not dependent on my behavior or your behavior. It's not dependent on my response or your response or my actions or my attitudes. This love of God changes us, rescues, redeems, and restores us. That's what the love of God does. That is what love is. Listen to what John 13 in this night of the betrayal of Jesus And John records now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. What kind of love did Jesus have? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. The end. The point. 1 John 3.16, John the apostle, he says, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us And so this vertical reality of what he's done, this belief of what he has done for us, it it plays out in our behavior. And therefore then, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the Christian case I'm making for love that doesn't run away from conflict, but it wisely engages in conflict for restoration. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us revealed, published, displayed that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. I love this verse. Not that we loved God. We're not the initiators of salvation. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He made a way for sinners. He made a way for you. He made a way for me. Amen? And amen. And in his making a way for us, we are to make a way for others. So how have you responded to this love? So I love this. Partners in grace, this is an uncommon and enduring love. This love abides. He says, my thoughts about you, oh, they're right. My feelings about you, they're real. My desire to be with you all, it's relentless. I just love being with you. And I can't wait to be with you again. So this morning, you've heard about this partnership of grace. My question is, are you in this partnership of grace? You see, you don't have to sit on the outside just looking inside the restaurant at the window, like look at all the beautiful food and the people eating the food. The invitation is it's all paid for. Come in and come to the table. But you can't come as, you, you can come as you are, but you're not gonna say you have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have to admit I'm a sinner and I don't deserve to be at that table. Now the Lord can deal with you. 
said, yeah, it's all paid for. He just doesn't, give, doesn't just give us a meal. He gives us his son, a savior, adopts us into his family, changes us, lives within us by his spirit and changes us. Are we experiencing this kind of love? Are we seeing this love happen around us in the body of Christ? Are we thanking God for that or do we think it's owed to us? Because let me tell you, loved ones, it's not. We're not entitled to it. But oh, praise the name of the Lord. We sure do and are and will enjoy it. Amen? Let's stand together. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word and for your church. I thank you for this apostle. I thank you for how clearly he communicates the love and grace to people that he loves. Lord, your gospel changes us. Father, I pray for the one who has not yet come to faith in Christ that today would be the day that they stop running, they stop procrastinating, but that today they would say, as so many thousands upon thousands upon even millions of people down through time have said, oh Lord, I'm a sinner, I admit my sin, and I confess Jesus as my Lord and my Savior and invite you to come into their life and save them. May they do that today as they surrender to you as Lord and God. Oh Father, I thank you for what you're doing in our church. I thank you for how you are blessing in so many ways that can't even be named. Bless your people as we learn from your word, as we abide in your spirit, and we grow in grace for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus, and for the good of all nations. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.